And if you would, turn with me now to our sermon text, our sermon which comes once again today from the book of Jude. Jude, of course, is the next to last book of the Bible, so right before Revelation. You can flip to Revelation, just go back just a bit. That's Jude. Jude is only one chapter, so we note it by its verses. And we will be looking this morning at Jude, verses 17 through 19. So here now. The word of the Lord. But you, my dear friends, or beloved, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you, They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's Spirit in them. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning for your word to us. Your inspired, infallible, inerrant word that has come to us in both the Old and the New Testament. And we pray this morning as we turn now to a new section in the book of Jude. And as we go forward in these next four weeks and finish out this study, Lord, we pray that you would capture our hearts with the truth of these verses. Lord, that you would set a solid foundation at Village Presbyterian Church from the truth of these verses. And Lord, that you would store deeply in all of our hearts the wonderful things that we see here. Lord, we pray you would start to do that this morning in these three verses today. So we pray now that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come into our sermon this morning, we are officially now moving out of the main body of this letter and into the specific instruction to faithful Christians which is actually the primary purpose of why Jude wrote the letter to begin with. And I really like the way that commentator Douglas Moo sets the whole context here. I found this very helpful, so let me just read a couple of lines from him. Moo says, Jude is known for his denunciation of false teachers. Now because of this, many students of the Bible immediately think of this letter as bearing an essentially negative message, and one not even very applicable to any Christian who is not engaged with false teaching. We can certainly understand why people have such an impression, for in verses 5 through 16, Jude does nothing but criticize and condemn people who are teaching wrong doctrine and live ungodly lives. Now to say that another way, to get at it a different way, let me ask y'all, especially for anyone in here who has been a part of our last four sermons, Are you beginning to feel a little bit heavy from all of the focus on false teaching and from all the focus on the ungodly lives that they lead? Are you beginning to feel like maybe it doesn't seem super applicable to you because you're not seeing maybe active places where you're engaged with false teachings? Well, I will be honest. I was beginning to feel a little bit that way, just a little bit, after our last sermon. Four sermons that focus so heavily on the wickedness of false teachers and the filthy lives that they lead 
is enough to make even the most hopeful of Christians start to feel a little bit yucky. And I just wanted to read that quote from Moo to help all of us, including me, understand that feeling such a way is not surprising given all that we had to unpack in verses 5 through 16. But with that said, we move into a new section this morning. You see, brothers and sisters, as yucky and gross and difficult as it was to wade through verses 5 to 16, it was necessary because it helps us understand with greater clarity exactly what Jude intends to teach us primarily in verses 3 and 4 and now in verses 17 to 23. So for all who have gotten a little tired of the yucky negative aspects of false teaching these last four sermons, understand that wading through all of that is what allows us to stand strong on the day that that filth will inevitably try to enter our own church here at Village Press. But because I can promise you those attempts will come. It is inevitable if we take seriously the book of Jude which means that we must be ready to contend for the faith, to defend the faith, as we saw way back in verses 3 and 4, which Jude now picks up again in his concluding thoughts beginning in verses 17 to 19. So we have two main points today. They'll go in conjunction, especially with the next two sermons as well. But for today, point number one, the first defense against false teaching is to listen to the apostles. The first defense against false teaching is to listen to the apostles. And point number two, the apostles tell us that false teachers are a sign of Christ's coming return. False teachers are a sign of Christ's coming return. So point number one, the first defense against false teaching is to listen to the apostles. Now we see this in verse 17, but before I read that verse again, I want to mention one important connection to verses 3 and 4 that's crucial. Okay, so a little Greek grammar here. When you look at the book of Jude, there are five sections. Verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 to 16, verses 17 to 23, and verses 24 and 25. Sections 1 and 5 line up. Sections 2 and 4 line up. And the middle section serves the purpose of all of that. Okay, so we see section 1 and 5 is serving as our benediction. Y'all have noticed that. We've used both of those as our benediction. Sections 2 and 4 is the connection we're making here today. And section 3, what we spent the last four weeks on, serves that purpose. Here's how we know this. If you look back at verse 3, you will notice Jude started his statement there with the phrase, Dear friends, or perhaps your translation may say, Beloved. Then you look at verse 17, and what do we see beginning this? Dear friends, or your translation may say, beloved. This is what we refer to in the Bible as an inclusio. And one thing it shows us is that everything between it served the purpose of making the main point that we see in these two sections. You see, in a real sense, verses 17 to 23 is the completion of what we saw opened up in verses 3 and 4. And we remember verses 3 and 4 was a call for us to defend the faith, a call to contend for the faith. And we mentioned there that contending for the faith is not something we do outside the church. We evangelize those outside the church to bring them into the church. 
but within the church, we defend the faith. We contend for the faith. And you could go back to that sermon, perhaps even this week, to help you kind of remember some of those things. And verses 5 to 16 show us why it is so important to defend and contend for the faith. So then wouldn't you know it, verses 17 to 23 now shows us the three primary ways we actually do contend for the faith, the ways we do defend the faith. So to put it one more way simply, we must contend for the faith primarily inside the church, verses 3 and 4. We do that because if we don't, there is gross, yucky filth that will come into our churches, and the attempts to do so will be constant and covert, verses 5 to 16. Therefore, Christians must do three things in order to effectively contend for the faith, verses 17 to 23. Three primary defenses, which we will look at the next three weeks, Lord willing. The first today in verses 17 and 19, the second next week, verses 20 and 21, and then the following week, verses 22 and 23. So let's dive into the first one, beginning here in verse 17. But you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. Now, as we read this verse, we see a very particular way that we must remember what the apostles have told us that we'll see in point number two. But before we even get to that, there is a principle of what Jude is doing here that we need to take time to notice because it is incredibly important for all Christians. In verses 5 to 16, Jude showed us how the Old Testament was designed, in part, to prepare Christians to oppose false teachers. Y'all have seen that the last four weeks. Lots of Old Testament examples that show us those things. And as is always the case, when false teaching enters the church, it comes in slowly, and at first it sounds correct. But then something sounds a little bit off, and we need a place to go to find out if it is or is not off. And that is, of course, the Scriptures. And for Jude's readers, the Scriptures were the Old Testament, right? That's what they had at the time. But Jude is now adding something to the Old Testament Scriptures. Notice what he's doing here. This is small but profound. He is saying to add to the Old Testament Scriptures, we must listen to the teachings of the apostles, what we call the apostolic tradition. And where do we find the inspired content of the teaching of the apostles, it is the New Testament. That is what we have. So in a very subtle way, Jude is now alluding to the teachings of the Lord's apostles as inspired scripture right alongside the Old Testament, which he has alluded to so much so far. So what we have here in the book of Jude is the foundation for the establishment of the whole New Testament, placing the inspired work of the apostles right alongside the inspired work of the Old Testament writers. But he takes that one step further. Notice, Jude does not say, remember what your pastors taught you. He doesn't say, remember what your teachers showed you. He doesn't say, remember what your elders said to encourage you. He says, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. So at the same time that Jude is establishing now the inspiration of the apostolic tradition alongside the Old Testament, he is also limiting further revelation from being included alongside the Old and New Testaments. He is telling his readers, and every generation in fact, 
when you are faced with the question of false teaching, you go back to the Old Testament scriptures, as he did in verses 5 to 16, and you go back to the apostolic teaching, as he tells us now in verse 17. And here is why that is so critical for facing false teachers. False teachers will do one of two things. They will either twist the scriptures to make it look like something that it is not, and that is only effective, hear me when I say this, that is only effective when dealing with Christians who do not really know what the apostles or the Old Testament have taught, or who don't spend time studying what is written in the Word of God. So Jude's charge for us to remember what the apostles said is a safeguard for us against this first way that false teachers try to twist the Word. The second thing that false teachers will do is to appeal to their own dreams, or so-called works of the Holy Spirit, that reveal new things to the church today, as they would say. And Jude is telling us, no, 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 don't listen to that either. All you need to remember, in addition to what the Old Testament prophets had to say, is what the New Testament apostles have to say. That is the totality, the completion of the Word of God. And if you hear anyone try to add to what the apostles and prophets have laid forth, you need to run. So our first defense against false teachers, the first way that we contend for the faith within the church is to literally remember all of what the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ have taught us. To study deeply the testimony of the Lord's apostles, which we have perfectly compiled for us from Matthew to Revelation. And to realize that they are the extension of the Old Testament prophets, and together they form the final inspired revelation from God to the church until Jesus returns, which, by the way, we'll get to in a moment. I would imagine that many people who get taken in by false teaching within the church either do not know what the apostles really taught, or they do not remember what they have heard from the teachings of the apostles. Because you see, this is the first line of defense. It is what allows a person to discern real teaching from false teaching in the first place. So one side note on this first point, I take this job very seriously as the former church planter and now pastor here at Village Presbyterian Church. Near the very top of my list as pastor of this church is to equip this congregation to know what the Old Testament and New Testament both have taught. Because that is your first line of defense against false teaching corrupting your life and corrupting the church. No matter how bold and courageous we may be, if we do not know what the Bible teaches, then we're in grave danger of going off into false teaching. No matter how cautious or careful we may be, if we don't know what the Bible teaches, then we are in grave danger of going off into false teaching. And while we will be, and while we will all be at varying levels of our understanding of the scriptures, our hope and desire is that everyone in the church is growing in that understanding of what the Bible has taught. And that collectively, as we are all pursuing that, that the Lord, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is safeguarding our church from these types of things entering. But we want to see that not at a head level, but at a heart level. You see, that is behind the Greek word Jude uses here when he says, remember what the apostles said. 
This word does not just mean recall to your mind. Plenty of people can memorize a verse and call that to mind, but it's actually to recall to your heart, to all of who you are. Y'all, some of the people in most danger of believing false teachings are those who know what the Bible says very well, but they've never actually let it sink into their heart. So when someone else comes along with a twisted way of saying what the Bible says in their understanding, then that actually appeals to that person because they will abandon what they knew in their head in favor of something that they can pretend is what the Bible said, but appeals to their heart that has been yet unchanged by the teaching of the Bible. When you wonder how someone who knew the Scripture so well goes into such error, you can be certain that it was because at least in that one area, their head knowledge never penetrated their hearts. And parents, that's why we have to be much more after the Word of God capturing the hearts of our children than the heads of our children. Not that they're totally unrelated, but we don't stop at the head. We must get to the heart, right? We would rather our children know a few core gospel truths at the depth of their hearts because their parents have really invested in the much more difficult task of drawing out things in their child's heart and then showing them how the scriptures speak into those places than we are to have children memorize tons of verses and lots of catechism questions, but never actually had parents take the time to explore what's going on in the depths of their child's heart. One of those things looks better, memorization, and is actually much easier but is all still at that surface level. Not that memorization is bad. The point I'm making is when that's all it is, it is just staying at the surface level. The other one is much more difficult to discern. It's a much more difficult task, but it is worth it because the end result is what truly guards a child's heart from false teaching. Because they will remember, not at a head level, but at the heart level, what the apostles and the prophets have taught in the scriptures. And that inspired word stored deeply in their hearts is what will guard them, not simply what may be stored in their head. And one reason, if we admit this, all of us, me included as parents, one reason we have a hard time doing this is because we don't often enough do this ourselves. Because it is the much harder work. But verse 17 is driving at this much more important aspect of remembering God's word. So point number one, the first defense against false teaching is to listen to the apostles. To let the teachings of the apostles not just be what we study at our head level, but to let that penetrate deeply in our hearts. You may not have all the head knowledge someone else does. But you can make sure that what head knowledge you do have penetrates the depths of your heart. And from there, try to increase that head and heart knowledge. Which segues quite well into our second point this morning. The apostles tell us that false teachers are a sign of Christ's coming return. We see it in verses 18 and 19. They, the apostles, told you that in the last times, There would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have 
God's Spirit in them. Okay, so verse 17, Jude gives us a large principle, a biblical truth that we just discussed in length. He then uses that principle to highlight one aspect that is uniquely helpful to Christians as we deal with false teaching. Something that actually encourages us rather than discourages us to remain steadfast in the face of false teaching. Here's what Peter Davids so masterfully observes. He says, The function of the remembering is to give a final proof that the presence of the false teachers he opposes is not something unexpected, but actually part of the apostolic teaching and thus forms an eschatological sign. All right, what does he mean here? To say that another way, Jude is telling us that when we see false teachers seeking to satisfy their own sinful desires, of which we've talked about for four weeks, at the expense of the church, then we are actually observing a very clear sign that we are living in the last days on earth. In verse 18, we see that the presence of false teachers is itself a sign of the end times. It's a very clear sign that the last times or the last days is actually occurring, is taking place around us right now. I'll put it to you all this way. Some Christians want to think of the last times as all something that is still in the future. So the way they would interpret Revelation is most all of this is way in the future that we'll discern one day far off. Something we're still waiting to happen, see happen much closer to the time of Jesus' second coming. But that's not how the Bible actually uses that term. And Jude 18 is a wonderful example of that. Jude 18 shows us that the presence of false teachers invading the church is actually part of the evidence that we are, in fact, in the last times, what Jesus also calls the last days. Now, these last days have been going on for 2,000 years, but that's just as time as we see time laid before us. But we will say that these last days, these last times have been increasing with tension, increasing with intensity for 2,000 years, and will continue to do until Christ returns. Here's what I mean. What have we seen, generally speaking, throughout the world for 2,000 years? We have seen two things grow at similar rates. We have seen the kingdom of God grow slowly but steadily throughout the world, And right alongside that, we have seen opposition to the kingdom of God grow as well. So I'll put this another way. As the kingdom of God grows, in proportion, opposition to the kingdom of God grows. And I'll use a a very small analogy here that's imperfect, admittedly, but to make this point, I'll use Georgia football as a very tiny example of this. Georgia football is on top of the college football world right now. And they have been for two years. They've won the last two national championships, only lost one game in two seasons. But as Georgia football has increasing success and victories, what is happening around their program? Well, two things are simultaneously happening, as they do with every sports team that experiences success. One, some people become new Georgia football fans, and Georgia nation, quote-unquote, grows. But two, opposition to seeing Georgia have success grows as well. 
when they don't have success, there's no opposition to them. You can think of plenty of programs that people around the country aren't concerned with. But because they're on top, there's tons of opposition that wasn't present years ago that is now emerged. The more success the program has, the more divisive it becomes between people who are newly on their side and people who are vehemently opposed to them. Now that is a very imperfect small example, mainly because Georgia football will not always be victorious. They will crash back down to earth like every other sports program always has. So it's an imperfect example because that's not what we see with the kingdom of God, is it? The kingdom of God is always victorious. It is always growing over and over and over again. The kingdom of God, whether in discernible or indiscernible ways, is advancing as it invades people's hearts throughout the world, as it invades people's homes throughout the world, as it invades nation and culture progressively throughout the world, everywhere. As it is victorious, more and more people are converted and transformed, thus the kingdom of God grows. And yet alongside it, more and more opposition grows to war against it. And one of the primary signs of this happening is what we see in Jude, the presence of false teachers. So Jude tells us, listen to the apostles. Brothers and sisters, the apostles are saying, do not fret over the presence of false teachers. Do not fret even over the increasing presence of false teachers. Instead, the apostles want us to realize that that is actually a clear sign that we are getting ever closer to the coming of Jesus Christ. Because the more the kingdom grows, the more opposition to the kingdom grows, the more false teaching emerges, and the closer we are to seeing Jesus come from the clouds of heaven to make all things right. Praise God. And importantly, all the harm that the false teachers do is because they do not have the Spirit of God within them. They claim it, as we saw a few sermons ago, but it is not present in them. And here's why that's important, many reasons, but one in particular here, because the fact that they lack the Holy Spirit means that they will not ultimately win the day. They will lose. Even if they're able to lead some astray, they can never take a single legitimate Christian out of the kingdom of heaven. And get this, far from their wickedness, thwarting the efforts of Jesus Christ, in the classic biblical irony, their wickedness is actually hastening the day that Jesus Christ is coming to return. So let me give an application here that you might see as negative at first, but is actually very, very positive. On the potentially negative side, here's what we say. The more the kingdom of God grows, the more the threat of false teaching is going to emerge in that place. So why do so many megachurches build up and collapse? Well, we could say at some places there's false teachers there from the beginning, and that's certainly true, but that's not what we're talking about here. There are plenty that maybe began as, or certainly began, as faithful witnesses to the gospel that saw God bless their efforts and the kingdom of God grew. And totally, unsurprisingly, false teaching then began to invade that church. But if the people were not equipped to listen to the apostles, to the teachings of the scriptures, then that false teaching takes over. The church collapses or goes astray, and it makes the headlines. Now, before you think I'm just hammering big churches, the exact same thing happens 
at small churches, only on a much smaller scale. Why do so many small churches that began by proclaiming the gospel faithfully eventually plateau and then decline? It's for the same reason, only it just plays out on a smaller stage. It is because false teaching at some level begins to invade the church, and if the people aren't equipped or, in, or interested in listening to the apostles, to the teachings of the scriptures, to confront that false doctrine, to contend for the faith within that place, then false teaching will take over, apathy will reign, or perhaps immoral, immorality will reign, the church will collapse or go astray, exactly like the megachurches. So I can say with certainty that I do believe the Lord has blessed many efforts here at Village Press, and praise God for that. For six years, we have seen a lot of wonderful ways that the Lord Jesus Christ has been so merciful and gracious to bring mercy, peace, and love, as we see in verse 2, into this place. But we must also be ready and prepared then for the inevitable slipping in of false doctrine into our church, both in teaching and in living. And I will say that both the provisional session and your current session, whether you know it or not, have had to deal with a number of those aspects since the very beginning. So when that comes again, do not let the fact that we have to guard ourselves against false teaching discourage us. That's what the apostles are telling us. Do not be discouraged by the fact that that is something you have to do. Rather, be encouraged. Be encouraged because it's a sign that the gospel is on the move, that the kingdom of God is growing in that place, and it's actually hastening the day of Christ's return. You see, every time false teaching threatens the church, whether it is someone stirring up divisiveness in the congregation, yes, that is false teaching, or someone who wants us to relax the commands of Scripture to allow them into membership or to remain in membership, yes, that is false teaching. Every time false teaching like that and a myriad of other examples threatens the church, this congregation will change one way or another. Without question, if the church boldly and courageously remembers what the apostles said and holds fast to the scriptures, both to the letter of the word and the spirit, the humble and gentle spirit behind the word, then the church will continue to grow and flourish always. And in their growth and flourishing, more opposition will come, more false teaching will emerge that will have to be combated, and as that continues to emerge in faithful responses, then it will bear even more fruit. And that cycle wonderfully continues until the Lord returns in his own unique ways of how he does that. But if the church becomes lazy, not listening to the apostles, or boldly trusting in their words that have been inspired by the Lord, then the church will become guilty of not contending for the faith, not defending the faith within its own congregation. And as a result, every time that happens, the church will suffer and take a hit. Now, we will not do that perfectly, but when we struggle, we repent and we turn and we re-engage in that battle altogether. But as we progressively don't do that, it will, praise, hopefully it won't be here, but as a church perhaps doesn't do that, hit by hit, the church will eventually shrink. And before you know it, there's no opposition and there's no threat of false teaching because there is no life in that place anymore worth attacking. Which brings us full circle, brothers and sisters, 
If you are a member of Village Prez or another gospel-centered church, or you desire to be a member of Village Prez or another gospel-centered church, then you have been called in some way to contend for the faith, to defend the faith. Children and youth in here today, let me encourage you that actually that is a core calling on your life as Christians in this place. Older people in here, it is a core calling of ours to pass this on at a heart level to the next generation of Christians who will rise up in this place. When you think at the end of Joshua, we read that the Israelites did wonderful until Joshua and all the leaders of his day died out. And then we read the book of Judges and we see what happens. So we want to make sure that this is a primary focus of us. And we do this primarily within our own congregation. Remember, we evangelize, we bring in from the outside. We contend for the faith and defend within the congregation. Which means to our members and future members and all of our children and youth in here today, we need you to be about this work. Not in a mean and aggressive way, but in a steadfast, humble, joyful, bold, and courageous way. And step one of defending the faith is to listen to the apostles, know what they have said at a heart level, and continue learning what they've said at a heart level to them and the prophets of what they've spoken. That is step one. And Lord willing, we will see next week, step two. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come before you today and thank you for your word to us. And Lord, this is a mighty calling that we recognize here and one that we know we cannot do on our own. So I pray right now that for everyone in this church today and all who listen to this in the future, Lord, that you would spur us on to know more and more about what your apostles and your Old Testament prophets have taught us, not at a head level only, but that it would penetrate our hearts and that it would allow us to see with clarity what things we must contend with and defend in bold and humble and courageous and gentle ways. Lord, I pray that you would especially today use the adults in this church to really do this ministry in the children at our church that you are raising up even now a faithful next generation at Village Prez. And from there, even their children and their children's children, that there would be a testimony of continuing to do these things and sowing these in the hearts of all those who generationally will have a tie, whether they even know it or not, to Village Presbyterian Church in the 21st century. Lord, we love you, and we pray all these things in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.